0: Go ahead and head over to Genesis 9. Genesis chapter. Nine. We're going to learn a new verse together right out of the gate. This is our series called Genesis Factor Fiction. It is an apologetic study looking at whether or not we can really believe what the Bible says about how we got here and the beginnings of all things, the beginning of, of humankind and animal kind and our very planet and our universe. And so I want to read you something very interesting in a few minutes that I came across this week in study, but I want us to say this verse together. You guys say Genesis 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 9, 9 with me. This is God speaking to Noah post-flood, okay? Let's read it. And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Now, think about it. Who's he talking to? Who are the descendants of Noah? Is this just the Jewish people? No, the Jewish nation's not been born yet. The Jewish nation is coming, but the descendants of Noah, congratulations, that's us. We are the descendants of Noah, and we'll talk about that, we'll unpack that together. What have we been learning in this flood narrative? Chapter six, we said there's a storm that's brewing. A storm is brewing, then I said be prepared. Then we had a double part that said the world is underwater. Finally then, we were high and dry, and for this week and next week, I'm ready to give you an earworm. You'll be singing it all day. A whole new world. I was going to have Jeff bring out a magic carpet, and we were going to fly around, but that was creepy, and it would make the news, and we're not that kind of church. So, a whole new world. And uh, I know that you're, you're thinking of Aladdin. You can explain that to Frank. Afterward, I asked him as I was going over the message the other day, um, do you know that reference? And he said, no, I don't think so. But um, so you can teach him about Aladdin. I want to read an article for you. I, I always want to um, pray that God would reveal things to me that he wants to share in the course of preparing these messages and spending a lot, a lot of time just quiet in the office. Karen knows I closed the door and nobody is allowed to come in save Cindy, now Lucy and if she could walk yet, Sophia, that's it. Nobody else gets through the door. And I was praying, God give me something to open with. I wanted something to sort of put a bow tie around this idea the debunking of evolutionary theory. Because folks, if you'll believe in a universal flood, most of the evidence out there is very easy to understand and unpack. Most of what we see today comes into perfect order and light when you have a universal flood. When you take that out, you have to almost go back and you're stuck with Darwinian evolutionary theory. So I'm reading the uh, Evidence Study Bible in my quiet time this year. And this past week, stuck in Deuteronomy of all places, it was in an odd place, but Ray Comfort, editor of this Bible, who often works with Kirk Cameron, many of you know, uh, Ray Comfort puts weird little articles all throughout, and they don't necessarily correspond to the text, but it was just perfect because I copied it out of my study Bible. The article said, evolution, happy coincidence. Question, is it, is it a happy coincidence? And I just want to read you a few things here, okay? Uh, there was a, a fellow, a physicist, um, Freeman Dyson of Princeton's Institute for Advanced Study who tried to explain the design of the universe without God. So clearly an atheist. He said this, as we look out into the universe and identify the many accidents of physics and astronomy that have worked to our benefit, it almost seems as if the universe must in some sense have known that we were coming. (laughs) Well, what do you know? Okay, there's another physicist, a Nobel laureate who said this, astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe that was created, created out of nothing and delicately balanced to provide exactly the conditions required to support life. In the absence of an absurdly improbable accident, the observations of modern science seem to suggest an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. They go on to say this, speaking of the absurd, absurdly improbable, Harvard paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould, you've probably heard of him, described humans as a, quote, glorious accident of evolution which required, now listen to what he said. It required 60 trillion contingent events. With cosmologists estimating the earth to be 4.55 billion years old, and to accomplish those 60 trillion events would require more than 36 necessary events per day, each day for 4.55 billion years, just to get Homo sapiens. And conveniently, each of these 36 new daily events just happen to occur in the right place, in the right time, in the right sequence. And it doesn't take into account the astronomical number of accidents necessary to form the tens, perhaps hundreds of thousands of separate ecosystems. One individual put it this way. The odds would be better of getting hit by lightning at the moment you won the Powerball lottery while dying in a crash of a plane struck by a meteor. But then again, such things don't happen every day. And so I want to draw this conclusion. When we think about what we've studied now, all the way from last year to this, Genesis 1 all the way through to the end of 9, think about this, Michael Ruse, a preeminent evolutionist, wrote this in a new, science journal, new Scientist Journal. Quote, an increasing number of scientists, particularly a growing number of evolutionists, argue that Darwinian evolutionary theory is no genuine scientific theory at all. And many of the critics have the highest intellectual credentials. Friends, those that are being honest with the data are coming rapidly to the conclusion that there is not enough time, not enough chance or happy accidents, and not enough weird contingent changes that could have possibly led to you and to me. Time, chance, and matter could not have made a whole new world, which leaves us from the pure naturalistic cause to the supernatural cause the divine. We know his name is God. Let's see what God is teaching us now through Noah post-flood. Stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. I'm just going to be able to get through verse seven today. It's a little heavy on the front end of the chapter, be a little bit lighter next week, although there's an incredibly important teaching that has been grossly misinterpreted over the years that I'm gonna really spend some time unpacking for us next time. So that'll at least be on the back end of spring break. We'll see what happens. So the Bible says that God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the air, on all that moves on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh uh, with its life, that is its blood." Surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man, his blood shall be shed for in the image of God, he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Heavenly Father, thank you for these commands straight from your mouth to Noah, and now to us, his descendants. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us by your word and your spirit, and then give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hands and feet to apply and walk in this truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, guys, be seated. So now that Noah and his family and all the animals are off the ark, what does the Lord wanna teach us? So let me unpack it like this. In a post-flood world, what we would call that is post-diluvian. Remember, a, a, a diluvian would be flood, so antediluvian is pre-flood. Post-diluvian is post-flood. So in a post-diluvian or post-flood world, what's the truth that we see here? Number one, animals are people and animals have a new relationship with one another. Things have changed. There is a new relationship between us and animal kind. We'll look at one through four in this section. You think about the blessings and the provisions for Noah, they are universal in scope, they are pertaining to all men and women in any error. Despite the corruption of mankind, God graciously presents us the same task of exercising dominion over the terrestrial world. Now, primarily we do that through procreation, right? But there is the the consequence of being human. When we are human, made in the image of God, the sin in the garden does not erase our humanness. What God is doing is re-upping what he told us pre fall Pre-fall, God says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over creation. But dominion involves accountability before God for the stewardship of the earth and all that live herein. Though it's tainted by sin, life possesses great value in God's eyes. And so humanity is the recipient here of another chance, a second chance, if you will. We've spoiled it once, Yes, we may spoil it again, but we will never be destroyed as we once were. That's coming next week. So that through this rebirth, this recreation, what we find is that God is re-upping his commitment to human beings. To ensure that animal life is not going to be a threat to human humanity and the human family remember God proportionately wiped out the animals upon land so that humankind could rebuild and rebuild quickly but now there's a fear and dread on the animals John Calvin said it like this the providence of God is a secret bridle to restrain their violence to restrain animal kind this is very different From the relationship adam and eve had with the animals god brought the animals before adam before adam so he could name them there was a peace between them there was a peace seemingly on the ark where god led the animals two by two and some for clean pairs in sevens and god brought them there seemed to be a peace but now god is saying they'll fear you they're not gonna just come easily to you anymore. This is a new day. The, the relationship between animals and man has changed. In fact, so much so that God now says, now you can take these animals for food. Heretofore, it would appear that animals were never used for food. Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly say don't eat any animals, but it's very clear when you look at Genesis 1, 28 and 29, that God actually initially designated plant life for the food of humanity. I know every vegetarian and vegan in the room is saying, yeah, you preach it there, preacher. Listen. Chill out for a second, okay? We don't live in a a pre-flood world. So I'll give you a quote about that in a minute, but what's the stipulation, what's the restriction? Don't consume the meat like savages with the blood dripping out. He's not talking about those of you that like your rare, medium-rare steaks. You're weird enough as is, it's okay. He's really saying, no, that's all right. What he's really saying is, you need to respect the life of the animal. The blood of the animal represents its life. All through the Bible, blood represents life. Even today, right? Blood represents life. And so God says, take your time. Don't be a savage. To shed blood represents death. Don't take it lightly. Meat in the ancient world was not an extremely common dish You didn't see a lot of meat on ancient dinner tables. Animals were often kept for their milk, for their hair, their wool, but not so much for their meat. So meat was often only available in a hunting expedition or when an animal died or was killed as a sacrifice. And while meat is now put on the list of acceptable foods, there's still this restriction. Drain the blood. Don't be a savage, okay? Have proper dietary practice. But I'm the so what guy. I'm the guy that through all my PhD work, I was the guy that would come in and they would argue for three hours on the end of a Greek word. And I'm always the student in the room going, hey, 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 boys, I got to go back to my church and preach this week. So what? Because most of them weren't actively engaging in ministry in the local church at the time. Pastor, they were like, uh, Dr. Harden, you remember the ivory tower theologians? They loved to tell you what to do. They just couldn't do it themselves. And so I was the so what guy. And so with each of these points, I've got four for you this week and next. I'm asking a so what question. So what if people and animals... Have a new relationship in a post-diluvian world. So what, pastor? Here's the so what. The so what is this. We are to be good stewards of all the resources God has graciously given. We're to be good stewards. What does that mean for me personally? For me personally, it means I had to come under conviction on the way that I love to hunt and fish. I love to shoot and catch. So I had to come under conviction when I was a little boy, as early as I can remember. I had my Red Ryder, Daisy, BB gun. y'all remember? I was a holy terror to the birds of our neighborhood. So much so that neighbors would go to my parents and say, would you please tell your son to quit killing all our birds? It was a bad thing. I shouldn't have done that, and I've taught my children differently, but I was shooting anything and everything because that's how I grew up. But then I realized something many, many years ago now. We're really not to take a life, unless that's a problem, like if there's a coyote that's causing problems. There are cases, but normally when you take a life, that is to be consumed for food. So we have a simple rule now. I or someone in need will consume whatever is taken in the field. And folks, you may not know this, but hunters are the greatest conservationists in the world. We give the most money. We care the most about the world around us when it comes to those that do it the right way, by the way. But listen, there are things I don't like. I don't like Canadian geese, but I hunt Canadian geese. But I always find people that do like them. And I say, have all you want, Bubba, because it's nasty. I don't like bear. In the one large black bear I killed, I donated that bear to a family in need. Now, I love venison and all of those kinds of things, but we're not going to kill it unless we're going to consume it, or unless it's a nuisance animal, or a rabid animal, or something like that. And if you're vegetarian, if you're vegan, that is fine. I'm meditarian. Congratulations. I just want to say, what we have before us is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's descriptive. God's not saying you have to eat meat. God's not saying you have to only eat green herbs or the the plant-based foods. What he's saying is now there is a freedom. And I don't want you to judge others because of their freedom. Now if eating meat causes a brother to stumble, stop eating meat. And so what he's saying here is a descriptive truth. And those of us that love the outdoors, listen, just always, always, always be a good steward of the outdoors, be a good steward. We, above all people, should be most green in a sense. I love what J. Vernon McGee said, longtime pastor in California, never minced words. He said, God gives man a new provision for food. Before the flood, he gave us uh, plant life. Now, he says, you may eat the animals. But they are diet fattest, and this thing becomes part of a person's religion. McGee said, I once met a lady who was vegetarian as part of a religion. She was so excited when I began to tell her that the antediluvians, the pre-flood folks, were all vegetarians. She thought that reinforced the idea that uh, everybody in the world should be vegetarian. But then I think she erased her notes later that she was taking down when I preached the sermon. Because the longer I went, I finally said, listen, all you vegetarians don't make too much of this because you remember it was just a bunch of vegetarians who were all destroyed in the flood. So that's what God thinks of all the vegetarians. No, I'm kidding. But McGee was basically saying is this, don't make too much of this reality. The reality is until sin There was no death. When sin entered the world, the stain of death on animal kind and humankind entered the world. And then God's great judgment on sin is on full display in the flood narrative. There are three new realities marking this post-flood world. So meat may be eaten along with plants, blood is not to be eaten in it, and now we're gonna transition to this one, the taking of another life Either by animal taking human life or human taking human life, that is now punishable by death, but in a different way. Number two, in a post flood world, the value of life and the image of God receive new emphasis and understanding. The value of life and image of God received new emphasis and understanding. Five, six, seven. Surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I require it and from the hand of man. And if you shed man's blood by man, blood will be shed. Now, let me tell you why that's different, folks. What do we see here? It's really a new decree contributing to the preservation of both human and animal life. What we're talking about here is the precursor to government. That's where we see it developed, right? What do we get first? We get man. Then we get woman. Then we get the institution of marriage. Then we have dominance of humankind over animal kind, but not dominance to just use at a whim, but to be good stewards. Then we have the precursor The government. I really want you to process this. The accountability to to, to God for preserving human life is put in humanity's hands. So blood vengeance in the ancient world is what you would have called it. Listen to me now. Capital punishment is what you would call it in the modern world. This is not a political issue. I want you to listen to me. Who judged Cain for murdering Abel? God did. Who judged humanity for the evil intent of the heart, which was fully uh, consuming humanity? Who judged them in Noah's day? God did. But now, the reason I believe in capital punishment applied properly only through the state is because God is now saying, through the hand of man, life will be required. Homicide. Homicide. Which is in always one sense fratricide. Why is it always that? Because it's always killing a brother, it's always killing a sister, it's always killing someone made in the image of God. That crime demands a punishment that matches. I would believe that what we're reading is the justification for capital punishment. And it is establishing the nobility of human life in which everyone is made in the image of God. But now listen to me, capital punishment is not instituted primarily as a deterrent for crime, but as a strong reminder of the uniqueness of man, uniquely created in God's image. God doesn't say take a human life when an animal dies. God says, take a human life if a human dies. And God is so clear on this, Old and New Testament. Now, whether human life is taken by animal or human, there will be a penalty. But the wording clearly affirms the sanctity of human life in God's eyes. Now, I know some folks, even well-intentioned but misinformed Christians, say that, well, what we really need... Is not capital punishment. What we really need is more restrictive laws. Uh, how are the bad guys dealing with the laws we have on the books already? Let me say something that's going to probably make somebody mad, and I'm going to get an email. If you expect me to read it, you better sign it. The problem in our world today, and particularly our nation, is not with a gun or knife in the hand, it is with the heart inside of man. You can try to overregulate, and you can restrict. You might assume that I am a Second Amendment proponent. You would assume correctly. The reality is, folks, that the gun in the hand is far less dangerous than the sin in the heart. And when we get that right, and when we realize that we cannot regulate people to believe in the value of life, there are still millions that believe it is okay to kill a precious little baby in the place that is supposed to be most sacred, the mother's womb. And people have gone out of their gourd since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I, for one, am glad to live in a state with some politicians that have backbone and understand that all life is sacred from conception to natural death. But there is this covenant with obligations for mankind and this promise. And it shows us that sin marred and scarred the image of God. But listen to me, sin did not obliterate the image of God. Here God confirms people are still made in his image. So what? That's the so what, here it is. We are to value all human life as image bearers of God. That's the so what. We value all human life. From the moment of conception to natural death, all human life is precious in God's sight. And by the way, we value all life. I'm not leaving the animals out per se, but they are not made in the image of God. There is a difference. You better believe if there is an animal threatening, we had an animal that kept coming in our yard later uh, last year, that kept coming even in daylight, that should not have been coming, that animal is no more because it was a threat to my family. And the reality is while all life is valuable, human life is different. Meaning what, Bobby? Meaning what? There's no place for hatred. There's no place for bigotry. There's no place for prejudice. There's no place for racism. There's no place for socioeconomic elitism. And there's no place for any other ungodly-ism in this world today. We are of the human race. There's one. We're all in it together and we all come from Noah and his progeny. All of us. I don't care what you look like on the outside we are all the same on the inside we've got to get that right you said now wait a minute pastor after establishing the sacredness of human life how can divine directive at the same time say it's okay then to kill a criminal who is also made in the image of God listen to me Capital punishment is not interpreted as a threat to the value of human life, but it is society's expression of God's wrath upon anyone who would profane the sanctity of human life. In fact, in the New Testament, the writings that interpret capital punishment as necessary for the function of society define the state as the servant who has the right to bear the sword and therefore enact retribution. In essence, then, the covenant is established to ensure the stability of our world. Now, listen, you don't have to agree with capital punishment. You don't have to agree that if someone willfully malicious, this is not manslaughter. This is different. This is not unintentional killing. That is different. Even the Bible responds differently to that. That's why we see the establishment of cities of refuge, et cetera. But willful slaying from human to human or animal to human must be punishment in same kind. You don't have to agree with that. You can hold a political position that disagrees with it, but you're not disagreeing with me, you're disagreeing with the word of God. I wanna be very clear about that today. If you hold a different position so be it and if you say well I want to err on the side of caution so be it if you say people make mistakes so be it but what I want you to see here is that God said life is so precious you cannot take it willfully without serious consequence what we find later is an example when Israel is birthed that the requirement was let's say that an ox took out someone And you knew that that ox had a habit of goring. Well, there is an example in Exodus 21 of Israel having the requirement of death by stoning both for the ox and the owner because you knew better. You knew that this particular beast was dangerous. And so God is very clear here. Again, you say, no, 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 no. That ended That ended in the Old Testament. Well, you need to go back and read Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter two, and you need to see the vibe of the importance of human life in the New Testament too. God values human life so very much. And by the way, where does life, and when does life begin? When does life begin? There are all kinds of statements out there about this today. But folks, if you say anything other than the moment of conception, you are not in alignment with the scripture nor with science. And what is amazing to me is that people try to say, well, at a certain point, there is life. It's the craziest, most anti-scientific position and certainly ungodly position that you could possibly hold to. To say otherwise denies the Bible and science itself. A new person with new characteristics and new DNA is created immediately upon conception. Life burst forth from that moment, and a new person comes imago dei, in the image of God. That's why I'm grateful for the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year, and I'm thankful to live in this particular state. A woman—now listen to me, and don't you throw rocks just yet—a woman— can absolutely choose what she wants to do with her own body. Ladies, I love you and I affirm you and you can choose to do what you will with your body. But from the moment of conception, that is not your body. That is another human being with unique identifiers. It is another life. It is another person. And don't you tell me it's potential life or it's probable life. No, my friend, the way God designed it, it is life. In fact, I want you to think of this. A very real scenario. A teenage girl is pregnant. She is not married. She is engaged, but her fiance is not the father of the baby. He's extremely upset, as you could imagine. Do you think she should consider an abortion? There are plenty of people in the world right now, regardless of what the law now says, that would say, of course she should consider an abortion. What kind of world would she be bringing this child into? I could add to the story that she's also very poor. Her family doesn't have much by way of worldly goods. Pregnant, teenager, no husband, the one she was betrothed to, not the father. You say, yes, of course we should abort that baby. That my friend, you've just aborted the Lord Jesus Christ. Because from all externals, they had nothing going for them. By all of the world's wit, it would appear that this child will be a distraction and a disservice to the community, and yet this child would be the savior of the world. So be very careful when you pass judgment. As noted earlier with regard to Israel's practice, even when punishment as such as capital, would be enacted, it must be given very, very carefully to execute God's judgment it was in accordance with what we call lex talionis which would be law of retribution or an eye for an eye you've heard this Israelite law recognizes as ancient law did in general that particularly in circumstances where this was involuntary there would be mitigated circumstance and there would be consequence of far less degree and so we're not saying indiscriminate killing for, for killings sake you can read about that in Deuteronomy 19 numbers 35 it's all in your notes but what have we learned? People and animals have a new relationship with one another in this post-flood world. And the value of life in the image of God received new emphasis and understanding. Now listen, some folks out there, because we have folks watching from everywhere. And why some folks tune in here when they seem to fundamentally disagree with every conservative biblical tenet. Why they keep tuning in to grace, I have no idea. You should stop wasting your time if God's not softening your heart. But here's what I know. You will attempt to make something political that never has nor will be political. This is a matter of the truth of God's word. And the truth of God's word is that people, all people are valuable in the eyes of their creator. And the way we treat people, all people, if they look different, if their abilities are different, if their function is different, if they're like we would say healthy as a horse or they're challenged in multiple ways, God loves people because people are made in his image. Now, you've probably seen something like this, but I'm gonna do it here because it's one of, to me, one of the most powerful reminders of the concepts we're considering in this post-flood world. Y'all know what this is? I had to look at it twice because I hadn't seen one in so long. That's the real deal. I know because um, Doug went and got it for me from the bank because I didn't have any of my own wallet and I've got to give it back after today. But if I said, no strings attached, who would like to have this $100 bill? How many of you would be up for that, honestly? Now, if your hand's not raised, we know you're a liar. Everybody'd like a free Benjamin. I mean, come on, let's be real. If I said, no strings attached, just take this this $100 and go enjoy yourself, everybody in this room would say, man, absolutely, give it to me, right? But then, and it's beautiful, and it's crisp, and the blue line, whatever that thing's for, anti-counterfeiting, man, that thing is nice. But then, of course, I can do this, right? (laughs) Let me ask, who's crazy enough to still want the $100 bill? Y'all are crazy. Now that thing is crumpled. Look at that. That thing is gnarly. Let me do this without ripping it. That would be bad. And so, yeah, I mean, would you still be able to spend it? Say so you better believe it. Yeah, I'll spend it. Now, you know what we could do is get the dirt from the bottom of my feet all on it. Still want it? Y'all sure? Well, yeah, I guess it'll still spin. Sorry, Doug, I know you're going to have to take this back to the bank. Why is it that you still want it? Because regardless of what happened to it, it's still $100, right? And so many times in our lives, we seem to be dropped crumpled, ground in by the dirt of our own choices or the decisions of others, and we feel like we're worthless, but you and I both know no matter what happens, we still hold value and worth. To the Lord himself, whether we are crumpled and finally, or finely creased, whether we are dirty or whether we are clean, we are still worth far, far more than any bill we could ever hold in our hand. In fact, the thing I really want to leave you with is this. The value of this bill stems from the fact that it was made and is backed by the government of the United States of America. No matter what you have been through, no matter what you face today, you have been made and you are backed by the God of the universe and no matter how it feels And no matter what it looks like on the outside or maybe even more damaging on the inside, God loves you and he values you and he loves and values that person across the way that looks different from you and he loves that guy out there that cuts you off and you want to give him the Hawaiian wave. He loves them and he loves you and he says life is valuable and the judgment of the flood didn't change it one bit. As Heather comes up to play, I want to remind us all human life is valuable because God created it and sustains it in His own image for His own purpose, His sacred image, His sacred purpose. And you know what? God's ways are so much higher than our ways. But if you want to know how much God loves you, all you have to do is go back with the mind of faith and the eyes of faith, and you see a hill outside of the city. And and you see there three men being crucified, two of which absolutely deserved it. But the fella in the middle had done nothing wrong. And yet he stretched himself out between heaven and earth. And he said, Father, I love them this much. I'm willing to give my life and shed my blood so that all of their sin, past, present, and future, cannot just be covered, but cleansed completely, washed away way, never to be brought back to memory, and they took him down when he died and buried him just across the way in a borrowed tomb, and three days later, God said, I accept that sacrifice, and by his power, he raised the Lord Christ to new life, and if you'll trust him, you'll find value and worth today. When you come to Jesus, you will get A whole new world. Stand with me. If you choose to write me this week and you don't put your name on it, I am not wasting my time. I will reiterate that point because some of you think I'm playing with that. And I just want to remind you, if you don't have the courage to put your name on something, you're a coward that needs to get right with God first. And so, I would like to remind you of that, those of you that attempt to paint every single thing with a political brush. uh, I'm not gonna have my politics separate from my faith. My faith is going to inform my political decisions. But I just want to remind you of that. Don't try to hide behind your email, don't try to hide behind your letters, typing them to be cute and not putting a name on the bottom. I promise you it's what I look for. And it gets put through the shredder immediately. Because someone very wise told me years ago, why would I ever take criticism from someone that I wouldn't take advice from? Might help you too. Thank you so much for watching us today.